What if it was illegal to be with the person you love? Or if you had to make a choice between them and your home, your safety and your family? This is the reality for far too many couples around the world. Couples who are divided by borders, by access to passports and citizenship, who are forced to spend years navigating capricious and incomprehensible immigration systems before they can start to build their lives together. I'm Joshua Martin. From New Lines magazine, this is The Lead. I'm joined today by Anna Likas Miller, a London-based journalist covering borders and migration, and the author of the upcoming book, Love Across Borders, Passports, Papers and Romance in a Divided World. Anna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. So you aren't just interested in these issues out of journalistic interest. They actually ended up having a really profound influence over the course of your life. And so I thought we could start off by talking a bit about that and about how your relationship with your husband, Salem, sort of brought them into such sharp relief for you that you felt like you had to write about it. Sure. Well, the book opens with me meeting my now husband, Salem, at the risk of, you know, giving away my love story and how it ends. But um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't actually just, um, you know, me falling in love personally. It was also I'm a Lebanese American journalist. I was living in the Middle East, first in Lebanon and then later in Istanbul. And it was in 2014, 2015, you know, the Syrian civil war was very much ongoing. And I was meeting so many people that were my age, really, my um, my peers in so many ways that I was befriending who um, were they were refugees. They were having these um, this need to. I flee their country and then figure out a new life when that hadn't necessarily been part of their plan at all. And so I was kind of already very conscious of just the fact that, you know, the papers that you held had a very different trajectory for your life. And when it kind of happened to me, you know, one of them ended up being um, Salem, who uh, was also a journalist. And we sort of had all of these things in common. You know, we were so cut from the same cloth in so many ways, still are. And, um, and, and yeah, but then, you know, when he ended up getting kicked out of Turkey, which was very much um, not an uncommon experience for both journalists and Syrians, of which he was both, that was when I really had this moment where I realized Um, you know, first, what am I going to do in terms of how am I going to be with this person and keep having a relationship with them? And then it was also, but what happens to all these other people? What happens to people who do not have an American passport or a Western passport? What happens when you can't just follow someone? And it's not only a passport, it's also, you know, what happens if you have kids? What happens if you have a job where you can't travel? I was so lucky to not only have a U.S. passport, but also I'm a journalist. We sort of got to set up shop in Iraq and that became our base together. And it was, you know, we were experiencing exile and deportation and all of these things. But at the same time, we were allowed to keep going because of that flexibility. And it's just not everyone has that. And I was really curious about how people's relationships do survive and how people do stay together. So that's when I wanted to embark on this journey of finding people around the world who'd had similar but different experiences. Right. And that passport, though, your American passport that gave you so much sort of access to the world and so much freedom. I mean, that was also quite a difficult thing for you to have when your husband didn't, right? That, you know, you could always leave and go back to the US and he couldn't come with you. 
Yeah, of course, because it is this thing that you really wish that you could change, but of course you can't. Like it's something that I think everyone who's been in this situation is just the number one thing they wish for is that they could just like magically bestow this freedom that they have on, you know, the person that they love. And so, so yeah, and it was, it was, you know, it's a difficult thing personally to navigate because there's definitely a lot of questions, a lot of guilt, a lot of all these things that you ultimately don't have control over. And then it's also explaining it to kind of your loved ones and sort of even having these like rites of passage of a relationship and stuff like, oh, why aren't you bringing your partner home for the holidays? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? It's like, oh, have you heard of the Syrian civil war? Have you heard of the Muslim ban? Have you, you know, have you been watching the news? Well, <laughs> let me tell you. So um, yeah, I got a big part of why I wrote the book to um, one of many parts you know, I mean, this book is such a labor of love and so many um, different milieus for me. But uh, one big reason was I kind of wanted to create a blueprint for other people like me, maybe to be able to explain these things so that maybe they didn't need the words, but they're like, let me give you this book so that you could explain this to your family. Yeah. And I guess sort of also to make it clear that, you know, if you're going through this, whatever this is, however, your relationship is being affected by borders, that you're not alone that it's actually something that millions of people around the world have to navigate. And this was like such a huge privilege for me as a journalist, because I got to meet all these beautiful, amazing people, both people in the book and also, you know, people that I was just meeting through my career as a journalist who were going through this, who would get really excited when I said I was working on this and then be sharing their stories. So because I'm a storyteller, because it's my job to be out there, um, sharing and gathering stories, I got to feel that feeling of not being alone. But when that's not necessarily your job, it is really easy to feel like you're in isolation. It is really easy to feel like, oh my God, I made this terrible mistake. And because of that, this strange Kafkaesque situation is happening to me when really that's no individual's fault. It's the system that's failing, failing so many people. Can you talk a bit more specifically about that, the sort of systems that people are forced to navigate in their relationships? Sure. Um, I mean, kind of the number one that comes to mind is just the immigration system anywhere um, where, you know, if you're not of the same nationality, one of you is at least one of you is inevitably going to have to go through some kind of immigration process. I mean, there's immigration right. systems, there's asylum systems, there's these sort of like nitty gritty legal systems. And then of course, there's sort of these bigger ideas of, you know, the institution of borders, sort of the histories of colonialism and white supremacy that made them that way. There's, you know, um, just sort of the general system of global inequality that means that some people have more rights than others in terms of freedom of movement. So there's there's so many at play. And of course, you know, these maybe an asylum system or an immigration system is set up to sort of help navigate that on some level. And a lucky handful of individuals are able to do that. But, you know, at, at, at the core is this global system of inequality. You talk quite a lot about this in your book, The History. And one thing that really struck me was just how recent all of this was. I mean, we tend to take passports and papers and border controls for granted, but it only really became this sort of global regimen in the 20th century, right? Absolutely. Like it only became a true requirement to cross borders and sort of, you know, organize people by nationality then. Can you talk a bit about the process of how that came about? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there have always sort of been passports and papers in terms of identification documents. Um, so, you know, passing from one place to another in terms of, you know, wanting to know who people were and whatnot. But it was really only so basically during World War One, this became more common, but it was very much a national security thing. It was we want to know who's coming and going because we, you know, either need to know if people are dodging the draft. Um, we need to know um, if, you know, who's coming in, if they're a spy, if they're an enemy, something like that. Um, but then it was, and then, you know, as recently as after World War One, there was literally a conference that was held that the whole purpose of it was like, should we abolish the passport? Like, should we re-implement freedom of movement? And it wasn't this sort of like, oh, you know, it, it wasn't this very like progressive minded the way we sort of think of it politically now. It was much more like, oh, well, this will facilitate the trade of goods. This will facilitate the movement of people. This will make life generally easier. And of course, they decided to shelve that for a later date that never happened. Instead, things started becoming more and more restrictive with time and borders became very much a tool of population control. That's something I thought was really interesting was that conference, because like you say, it wasn't a particularly progressive minded thing. It was just they didn't live in a time where this was all just taken for granted as a fact of life. And I was wondering whether you thought there was a chance that the decision could have gone a different way. Could we all be living in a world without passports or do you think it was kind of inevitable? Um, I mean, I was there. There's no way to know for sure. And I don't know sort of the, you know, the 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 political makeup of the people in the room, who was pro and who was against. But, you know, I did while I was writing the book, I found myself imagining that a lot. Like I found myself imagining, you know, thinking about these moments in history of like, wow, if that meeting had ended differently, where would we be now? You know, would I have friends who've had to take this dangerous journey from the Middle East to Europe over the sea, would I have, you know, a relationship where we sort of were not able to choose the country we ended up in? It was very much a very narrow um, selection for us, let, let, let's say. Um, so, you know, I think it is worth imagining and it is powerful to imagine what that world might look like because, it's hard right now because, of course, borders are so restrictive and so many people lead a very restricted existence in terms of their freedom of movement. But I think it's powerful to be able to imagine a future where it isn't like that, because imagination is, of course, sort of the first step to creating a policy, to thinking about what that might be like. So I think that is really important for, you know, readers, civil society, decision makers, everyone. You do talk about it in terms of freedom, which I thought was interesting because you don't tend to hear it framed that way. We had Leah E.P. on the show last year and she was talking about growing up in communist Albania and how there was this huge gap between the material reality of the life she led there mm -hmm. and the ideology that she was raised with. And she actually now also lives in London. And she said that she sees a similar gap between ideology and reality in London and the UK and, you know, similar ostensibly liberal societies like the US or France or whatever. She said, quote, you get told you live in a society that prizes freedom, but then you see the way that society treats people at the border. And I was just wondering whether you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, the United States, of course, like freedom is such an important ideal to that country in particular, but it's very much reserved for citizens in a place that has being a nation of immigrants is such a huge part of its history and its narrative. So it is quite hypocritical when you do think about this idea of freedom of movement, of being able to not only just travel back and forth between countries, um, crossing borders, but also even just the idea of meritocracy, which of course is something that is maybe a bit more, you know, of a common discussion in more conservative circles. But if you're really talking about a global meritocracy, you know, why are some people of some citizenships prioritized for a job, let's say, over people of other citizenships? Why is education something that's more accessible to some people than others? So if you're really, you know, want to have freedom of choice, freedom of movement, a genuine meritocracy where it really is the best and most talented people who are able to pursue certain opportunities, let's say, just to use an argument that's, you know, maybe a bit different when the than the type of arguments I typically use in terms of, you know, every, you know, couples belong together, family shouldn't be separated, etc. This idea of border should be something of free movement for everyone. Right. But I mean, the argument about families should be together. I mean, I think that is a very powerful one, actually. And I was thinking this as I read through the book. Do you think that you might reach people who wouldn't otherwise think much about borders and migration? I think the existence of things like green cards does kind of suggest that people have kind of an intuitive sense that romantic love shouldn't be subject to restrictions, border restrictions or otherwise, even if they tend to otherwise believe in the border. So, yeah, I wondered whether you hoped that you might be able to reach people in a slightly different way talking about love. Oh, absolutely. Like, I would love for people who, like, haven't necessarily thought about these things a lot in their own lives to, you know, be faced with something that they hadn't considered before and, you know, do their own research and sort of, you know, go on their own journeys with learning more about that. Also, just in terms of the idea of family and that families belong together. I mean, if you do think about the United States and also how, you know, conservatives talk about borders and how conservatives talk about family is, you know, you have sort of a powerful case of like, this is a family value, allowing people to be together in the same country without restriction as easily as possible. It's a family value. So um, I'm really hoping that it reaches people from that angle as well and start some discussions that are, you know, outside of the normal kind of progressive open borders, et cetera, type spaces, which of course is, um, you know, so many of the activists and speakers featured are very much a part of that world. And I'm absolutely so grateful for their scholarship and research and absolutely tireless work. But I'm, I would love this to reach people who aren't already having these conversations. I mean, you tell quite a lot of different people's stories in your book, but if you could only tell one story to someone who, you know, like you say, hasn't been reached, who doesn't necessarily buy into the ideal of a borderless world, which person's story do you think you'd tell? Um, I mean, it would depend on who they were, right? But I think Cecilia's story is so powerful. She's such a beautiful person. Her partner, um, the husband of her five children, was deported to Mexico um, actually about 10 years ago. 
And um, he once he was deported, he was barred from coming back to the United States because there's these three and 10 year bars that basically if you've crossed the border unauthorized, you are subject to that, which means that if you're deported, then you can't come back. And, you know, if there was some kind of, you know, just some law in place that there was no longer a bar and he could just say, hey, you know, my family lives here, like, let us all be together. That family would have a very different story. But instead, they've lived separated for, you know, the past 10 years. And I find that both incredibly heartbreaking. I find the way that they are still together and still have managed to keep their relationship alive incredibly beautiful and incredibly telling for, um, you know, what so many people do go through. And, you know, her philosophy is very much that no border can get in the way of your love, which I think is so incredibly beautiful, but it is so frustrating when borders do get in the way of people who love each other being able to be together. Talking sort of as well about the sort of, you know, the ideal of the borderless world, it's never seemed further away, right? Yeah. What do you think people can realistically do to try and change that? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I guess it really depends on the people. Well, I'll say this. I mean, let's see, last year, around this time last year, after the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, you really saw policies change towards Ukrainians overnight. You saw the European Union suddenly saying, you know what, any Ukrainian person that's in the EU, they can be here three years, no questions asked, before they have to seek asylum. Um, You know, you saw even the UK, which has notoriously rigid borders, you know, setting up a sponsorship system that allowed a lot of people to be able to come here. And for me, as someone that's followed so many stories of refugees in different contexts, I was just like, yeah, this is exactly what you should be doing. I mean, it still is awful to have to leave your homeland. Of course, it's still horrible. You know, Ukrainians are survivors, just the way that any other group of refugees is. But you saw the way that those policies could quickly change when people were so moved. And, you know, I know a lot of people who are just like, why wasn't it that way for us? And how would it be different if it had? So again, it is that question of a little bit of imagination can go a long way. Do you think there's actually a chance that, you know, in the near future, 10 years, 20 years, you might be able to shift it? Or do you think that Ukraine is sort of an anomaly? I mean, it's an interesting question. I don't see how you would not. And the reason I say that, not to be an alarmist, but it is, there are more, you know, so many more people moving than ever before. And so many reasons that people are being pushed out of their homeland. You think about, you know, how are borders going to sustain themselves the way they are now with how fast climate change is going, how many climate change refugees there might be. It's going to be unsustainable if, you know, coastlines and are disappearing and people's homes are being swept up and say natural disasters, and then you're not allowing them to transit to somewhere to be safe. I don't see how that's going to be physically sustainable in the future if that is to happen as predicted. 
So um, I do think that people need to be thinking about this and need to be thinking about how to keep people safe, how to allow safe passage, how to mitigate um, some disasters which are inevitable. I mean, it just it might be because I've been a journalist in the Middle East for, you know, five years and then um, married a refugee and everything that I'm very disaster minded. But, you know, we had for in just my own sort of life, like there was the port explosion of Beirut recently, there was the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, there's all these things that compound, I mean, the global pandemic going on, which that was another really interesting question with borders. So I, I just don't personally see how restrictions are going to serve the global majority, they already don't. Do you not think there's a chance that the intensification of climate change is likely to have the opposite effect from that, where as people feel less and less secure and more and more people are coming across the border, that it drives people further right, drives people to stronger border restrictions and less compassion? Yeah, I think it very well might. And that's that's the scary thing, because, you know, then where is that going to leave people? Then... Um, you know, how how much more is this world that's already so unequal in terms of like, who has the right to be safe and protected, and who doesn't that divide is only going to grow. So um, it's very possible and very frightening. It is. I mean, I do think one of the interesting things about, well, interesting is maybe the wrong word, but, you know, climate change isn't going to be restricted to the countries where people are currently being displaced. It really is going to be global. And so you're going to see people who have championed restrictions on the border, who have never thought that they could ever be a refugee, being made into refugees. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's an a comparison to be drawn between that and COVID, where it wasn't necessarily people being refugees, but it was a lot of people suddenly facing border restrictions that hadn't faced border restrictions before. It was the whole idea of borders and boundaries shifting and being both, of course, national borders, but also maybe a neighborhood or a district or even a household in some kind of situations. And People were pissed. They were pissed that they couldn't see their family for the holidays. They they campaigned so much, you know, here in the UK of just having like those three days around Christmas where, you know, was it three days or maybe it was like it was three different households for Christmas. So that was such a big deal. Yes. And, you know, and it, it was something like the whole time because me and Salem had had this experience at that time, I'd started actually, I'd already started gathering the stories for this book because I was working on the proposals. So I had all of these stories of love and borders at the front of my mind. And I'm just like, do they not see the similarities? Like it was so like, you know, like neon lights in my own head. <laughs> and then, um, you know, and then the minute things went back to normal, some people got their freedom back and other people still didn't have it. That must have been very frustrating. It was intense. I, I, I talked to a lot of people's ears off about it. <laughs> Talking of you and Salem at that time, I'd like to go back where we began, which is your own personal experience of this. And you do kind of have a happy ending, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you did eventually figure it out. So I wondered if you could just talk a bit about how you managed to resolve it. 
Wow. I think it was definitely, I, I think luck is huge. Um, luck and patience and perseverance. I'm not going to downplay those other elements. Basically, what happened is Salem was uh, kicked out of Turkey. We lived in Erbil in Iraq for a while. And that was a period of time where we were very much living in limbo. We did not know where we were going to go. Um, I would have loved to just get married and move to the United States. Um, the Muslim ban was happening, so that was not possible. And um, and so it was this question of where we were going to live. And I was trying to come up with a lot of different creative ideas, because if you have a Syrian passport, the number of places you can go without a visa, it's not only quite small, it's also extremely random. There's, you know, it's like Malaysia, Dominica, not Dominican Republic, Dominica, um, even smaller island in the Caribbean. Um, you know, it's the Maldives, like, okay. Um, you know, it's these places where we couldn't, you know, I mean, even if we had been like, okay, we're gonna go to Malaysia, like, how are we going right. to imagine our lives would be there as YouTube journalists that were covering the Middle East? Um, so what happened was Salem was able to get a visa to the UK, and that was only because he worked as a journalist. He had worked with UK publications in the past. He had gotten a UK visa in the past, which was the key point. And then this, and like it was expired when he got deported. So it did not help us at all then. But then he applied for it again. And then he was able to um, come to the United Kingdom and seek asylum. And um, the funny story, without giving away too much in the book, but we already know <laughs> the ending, so I'm going to go ahead and say it, is that me, as the American citizen, ended up marrying him, the Syrian refugee, for papers, because I needed to stay in the UK, because I, oh, don't, wow. yeah, um, I don't have the right to be here uh, as an American. Why would I? Um, so I do make a joke that I married my Syrian refugee husband for um, national health insurance. So you never know how these stories are going to turn out. <laughs> that is something, actually, though, that I really enjoyed about the book. It's often heartbreaking, but it is surprisingly funny. Thank you. There was a moment uh, near the start, I think, when Salim was deported from Turkey and you told him, have a nice deportation. I've been awake for like 48 hours. I, it was so inappropriate, but that's how we talk to each other. Presumably that was a big part of how you sort of try to deal with you know, a really difficult situation. Absolutely. I mean, I think that especially one of the things that I've encountered so much in the Middle East too is that people are funny in really dark times. And I think that we definitely do have a dark humor. I kind of understand it from an Arab American perspective where I grew up, you know, around people who we would make jokes about the fact that people thought we did 9-11 and we would make that really funny and um and you know and then meeting people of course are surviving the Syrian civil war and all of these types of things I saw so many different versions of that humor that I really am convinced that we're all united by it but um it's been a huge bond between me and Salem even beyond that cultural humor he's just hilarious as an individual and um I think you know being able to make jokes 
at these times was something that helped so much. And um, it was something I was very curious about when I talked to the other people in this book. I was like, you know, can I ask, like, what kinds of jokes did you and your partner make when you were in these situations? And so many times they'd be like, oh, yeah, we have this hilarious one. Um, so I did find it was a huge commonality. And, you know, even just in terms of the craft of writing the book, you know, using me and Salem's story as the narrative arc, um, I saw that as a very essential way for me to put humor into the book in a way that maybe I wouldn't be as comfortable sort of adding that humor to someone else's story unless they'd explicitly yes. said a, a quote or something like that. But I can make fun of me and Salem until the end of time. <laughs> Give me permission to just go all over the place with that. So um, it, I had a lot of fun with it. Even my editor, was she would be reading drafts and she's like, I was not expecting this to be a funny book, but it's funny. Is that is that okay that I'm laughing? I'm like, yes, I designed it for you to laugh. Did you find kinship with the people you talked to in any other ways as well? Obviously, there's the dark humour and the basic thing of you both experiencing these very difficult situations. Did you find that there was a sort of sense of kinship in a lot of other ways? Definitely. I mean, um, you know, some I have different kinds of relationships, of course, with different people in the book. You have people like Valentina and one of the final chapters, who she's one of my best friends. <laughs> so even doing that interview was it was actually the hardest interview because she's the person that I'm the closest to so and I know the most information just about her backstory and everything because we have a friendship so even being like wow I have this I love this person personally so much and then putting her story together in a way that did justice to it was um it was really, it was really hard, but it was really, you know, beautiful and wonderful. Like, I hope she sees it as a testament to our friendship as well. Um, you know, so many commonalities with different people. I mean, for people who were also from the Middle East, uh, of course, there's a cultural connection for people who, um, you know, maybe it was a, sort of a cross-national relationship, the way that me and Salem is. You have mm. a lot of humor in your cultural differences uh, when you're in a relationship like that, you know, of course, one of you with me and Salem, one of us is always speaking our second language at all times. So we're always making mistakes, whether he's speaking in English or I'm speaking in Arabic. So there's constant little bits of humor and there's so many relatabilities um, between people with that. So I really found a lot of moments of humor with the people in the book, a lot of moments of solidarity. And um, yeah, it was a huge joy to connect with everyone, honestly. And it just, it felt, um, you know, almost like quite spiritual sometimes when I would meet people who their story and experience felt so aligned with everything that was, you know, happening in the book. And it felt just really special to get to cross paths and interview them and see if they could be a part of it. Did you find that people were more open and sort of willing to speak to you about these issues since you had first-hand experience of going through the same sort of thing rather than just being one of these journalists parachuting in and being like right tell me all the details about your life oh definitely definitely and it, of course it it changed how I asked the questions as well and it changed sort of um even even the interviews were different than other 
journalistic articles I've written where sometimes I have been the person that's parachuting into a situation that doesn't necessarily affect me as much where, you know, in terms of maybe even sometimes crossing certain boundaries, like being like, oh, you know, just so you know, my husband, I know some people that were able to get this kind of visa, blah, blah. So it becomes sort of a, a connection where you are sharing information sometimes where, um, you know, you are, so, you know, you want to be available and there for people who've um, shared <laughs> in that kind of a way. So I did find it to be a lot more of an equal sharing of our histories um, than I'm used to. And that's something that I hadn't really done that much in the past, just because when you're learning how to be a journalist, you're kind of taught, you know, your job is to stand there with the microphone and let the other person do the talking. And then I remember um, when I actually met a guy who now he's a friend of mine, but the first time I met him, I was interviewing him and and then he was just like, okay, so I've told you a lot about me. Like, now you've got to tell me about you. And I was like, yeah, you know what? That's fair. Like, you've told me all this personal stuff about you. Like, let me do the same. So it was. And I love that. I loved it. It's that conversation changed how I did journalism from then on. And I, I tried to sort of carry that spirit a little bit with me in the book. Anna Likas Miller. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been The Lead, a podcast by New Lines magazine. You can find Anna on Twitter at Anna Likas Miller. Her book, Love Across Borders, Passports, Papers and Romance in a Divided World, will be released on June the 6th and is available for pre-order at all good bookshops. This week's episode was produced and hosted by me, Joshua Martin. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com.